Today's scripture reading comes from Acts 17, 16 to 34, and can be found on pages 1,113 to 14 of the Church Bibles. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening about the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, Dionysius sorry, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's a great joy and honor to share with you God's word once again. Thank you, Nathan, for your kind introduction. Let me just start with a brief word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. 
for the Lord Jesus, our living word. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. As Nathan mentioned, we moved from Japan to Basel, and this morning uh, on the train there were a number of runners. Apparently there's a mini marathon going on uh, between Switzerland, Germany, and France. So are there any marathon runners among us this morning? You might, uh, you might wonder what the gospel has to do with a marathon. Well, did you know that in 490 BC, when Greece was under the hegemony of the Persian Empire, there was a decisive battle to be fought between Athens and Persia in a place called Marathon. And as you can imagine, the citizens of Athens were waiting in great anticipation of the outcome of the battle. Were they going to be defeated? and punished for their rebellion? Or are they going to be freed from Persia's oppressive power? At last, the long-awaited messenger appeared on the horizon, and according to the legend, he ran, surprise, surprise, 40 kilometers. Still from a distance, the herald probably was shouting something like, victory, we won! We fought for you. We are free. It was a life-changing news, as you can imagine. The victory changed the status of the Greeks from being oppressed and enslaved to a free people. Now for the history knowledgeable ones among you, you will know that this legend or this this battle is shrouded in legend, but it helps us, I believe, to understand the concept of the gospel. Why? Behind the word gospel is the Greek word euangelion, which basically means good message. So when Mark begins his gospel with the words, the beginning of the euangelion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark wants to tell us about a life-changing, a history-making news that brings great joy and liberation. You see that a resurrection proves that Jesus won a battle against sin, Satan, and death. He gave his life as a ransom for us. We are free. Salvation is not something that we need to work for. No, the main battle has been won, has been fought for us. It's done. All we need to do is to turn. That's the word of repentance, to turn to our victor and identify with our Redeemer and his kingdom. And since then, Christian heralds proclaimed this good news from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth was like an explosion of joy, as somebody put it. This illustration of the battle in Marathon was inspired by Timothy Keller. 
this great uh, pastor, theologian, uh, went to be with the Lord last Friday, I believe. He was a great inspiration to me and my wife. We often did our devotionals with his, his psalms, and we enjoyed his and benefited a great deal from his sermon, sermons on YouTube. We thank the Lord for his great ministry. Where were we? The good news spread like wildfire, like an explosion of joy. Does the good news of Jesus, of having liberated us from enslavement to sin, from the fear of death, still excite you? The Gospel of John puts it like this. If Jesus has freed you, we are free indeed. I suppose there are two major challenges to evangelization today. Firstly, many seasoned Christians are sometimes in danger of losing that first wonder and joy of being liberated. And secondly, there is the challenge of how to communicate the good news according to our context. Today I would like to talk about the latter and uh, to illustrate the potential difficulties of communicating the gospel, a, a brief a story from Japan. On one occasion, one of our missionaries uh, was preaching the gospel to a congregation, well, sorry, to a group of Jap non-Christian Japanese. And he was preaching in perfectly understandable Japanese. And he was saying something like, you know, Jesus the Messiah died for your sins. And uh, if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. When the altar call came, nobody responded. But at the end of the service, an elderly lady came forward to the missionary and said, sensei, means teacher, um, I'm not quite sure what this talk about the Messiah was about. And uh, besides that, I don't want eternal life. I just want to be with my ancestors. We have a gospel to tell, but often we do not know how to communicate so that the people actually understand that good news. There were few people who were more zealous in spreading the good news than Paul was. But Paul was not just a zealous evangelist, he was also a master of contextualization. He knew how to present the gospel according to his audience. So shall we learn a couple of lessons from Paul, shall we? As you know, Paul would usually approach the task of evangelization following a similar pattern. First, he went to the local synagogue. And there he would proclaim Jesus as the suffering and vindicated Messiah according to the Hebrew scriptures. And if he was lucky, like in Berea, the place where he was before he came to Athens, the Jews would actually eagerly examine their scrolls to see whether Paul's teaching was in tune with scripture. 
Well, these people knew their Bibles, as it were. In Japan, by contrast, the large majority of Japanese do not know the content of the Bible. They're not expecting a Messiah. So it does not make sense to say, I have great news. Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah who? How about Switzerland? Recently, an experienced uh, pastor friend of ours was actually lamenting along similar lines. People nowadays, she said, really do not know the content of the Bible anymore. And in some sense, Switzerland might even be worse than Japan because not only do they not know the stories of the Bible anymore, many of them actually would have biases against the church and may even ridicule us as hidebound, as stuck in the past. In Athens, Paul also talked to an audience who did not know the Bible and who made fun of Paul and the gospel. So given these similarities, we might find some help and encouragement from Paul's experience in Athens. Interestingly, when Paul arrived in Athens, the culture capital of the world in his days, his initial reaction was not, wow, how incredible architecture. Look at the Acropolis, how learned, how civilized. No, it says that he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. During our years in Japan, we could relate to that somewhat. Apparently in Shintoism, there are some eight million gods. You see in animism, gods are everywhere. As for Athens, according to one ancient writer, Petronius, it was easier to find a god in, in ancient Greece than a person. Well, behind idolatry is often the deep-seated wish to be in control. If one serves the gods with food sacrifices, incense offering, money donations, you name it, um, that is to gain their favor for them to fulfill our desires. In Japan, there were specialized gods for successful business, for passing the exams, for getting pregnant, for finding the perfect marriage partner. Um, idolatry is basically self-serving. Well, it's easy to point at the gods in another religion, isn't it? But when we define idolatry with ultimate concerns, as some uh, theologians do, then the gods became suddenly uh, quite a bit closer to our own hearts, don't they? Ultimate concerns. It was John Calvin who famously said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Anything might become an idol. Usually it is ourselves and our longing for satisfaction, for, for love, for happiness, that gives rise to all kinds of idols that replace God from the center of our hearts. A quick test might help us to detect potential idols in our lives if we ask ourselves, where do we spend most of our time in our leisure time? Where do we spend most of our energy and money? 
that might be an indicator of where we believe our joy and happiness comes from. We will be restless in our quest for true happiness until we find complete rest in our Creator and Redeemer. Paul was highly upset by seeing this omnipresence of idols in Athens. Literally, his spirit was provoked within him, it says. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses the same verb to talk about God's jealous anger when he saw the golden calf. A holy anger and jealousy for the glory of God, I believe, is one of the greatest incentives, actually, for for mission. We want that people acknowledge and give praise and thanks that is due to our Creator and Redeemer. Many people adore the amazing beauty of nature, and yet they often ascribe it to evolutionary chances or are just ignorant. This ignorance that there is an amazing Creator behind all this beauty must sadden God. Jealousy for the glory of God is a powerful motivation for evangelization. The psalmist says, declare his glory among all the nations, his marvelous work among the peoples. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. From a Christian perspective, God's supreme work is achieved among the peoples in the victory over sin, Satan, and death through his son, Jesus Christ. So what does Paul do? In verse 17, we read that he argued in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and also in the marketplace. Paul also debated with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. I think it's amazing to note that Paul reasons with the Jews in the synagogue, with the normal citizens in the marketplace, and with the learned thinkers. I suppose in our context, talking to Jews about Jesus would perhaps be like talking to nominal Christians and challenge them that Jesus is not just a wisdom teacher and a prophet, but that actually he is wisdom incarnate, that he is the word of God and of course, our personal savior. While the equivalent to talking to people in the street might be like street or friendship evangelism, And with regard to the philosophers, perhaps the closest form of outreach in our day would be involved in apologetics with university students, perhaps. In any case, I think it's inspiring that Paul can relate to all kinds of people. Do you think he talked to them all in the same way? What do you think was the greatest challenge in switching communication from, say, a pious Jew to a pleasure-seeking Greek youth or to a proud Stoic philosopher. Do you adjust the way you talk about faith depending on audience and context? We need to pray for more gifted evangelists. We read that some of the philosophers said, what does this bubbler want to say? 
Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. I wonder how Paul felt when he was being made fun of. They called him a bubbler, a big mouse, picking up trivial ideas, so the Greek seems to imply. Some of us perhaps can relate to the fact that sharing Christ can actually evoke ridicule. But Paul must have made at least some impression, for we read that some Athenians invited him to speak at the Areopagus and asked him to present his teaching in front of the philosophers, the educated classes. The Areopagus was just below the Acropolis, and it was a long, it was a long established court for civil and religious matters. And there we note Paul addresses his audience very courteously. Athen Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. Although Paul was extremely distressed about all the idols in Athens, he, he does not condemn their religious and philosophical system. In fact, Paul establishes connections with his audience. He refers to an altar with the inscription to an unknown god. What therefore you Athenians worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, Paul says. How does this mean that Paul wants to say that one of the Greek gods is identical with the god of the scriptures? No, of course not. But we shall see that Paul only uses this unknown god as a springboard to talk about the god of the Bible. He goes on to say that this god does not live in temples built by hands, and we can imagine how he probably pointed up to Athena's temple on the Acropolis. Uh, in fact, our God, Paul says, is not served by human hands at all, as if he needed anything. And here, the evangelist, I think, starts to challenge the Athenians by saying implicitly that the God of the Bible is, is far superior than all your gods. But Paul does not say explicitly serving idols is ludicrous, Instead, he provides a greater vision of the true and living God by saying that the true God is sovereign over heaven and earth. He is the very source of all life. And yet this sovereign, transcendent God is also near each of us. And Paul quotes here another Greek poem, actually. For in him we live and move and have our being. Yes, God is near us, but humans are often far away from God because of sin. Paul challenges his audience. It is now time to turn away from self-serving ways, from the things that God hates, it's time to turn away from our ignorance of the living God and his ways. So Paul steps up his challenge by speaking of a forthcoming judgment. Now, talking about judgment and a righteous anger is not very popular, isn't it, in our culture either? 
People prefer to speak of a God of love and forgiveness, and of course, this is true, but it's only one side of the story. You see, I don't think God can only be defined with one word, love. It is a, a holy love. God is not just a loving creator, but he's also a righteous judge. And if you have been unjustly oppressed, exploited, or even worse, then the fact that God is a righteous judge who will eventually sort out everything is actually great assurance and comfort. This future judgment, Paul says, will be through a man who God has raised from the dead. Paul was probably aware that by mentioning the resurrection, he will lose most of his congregation. The physical resurrection from the dead in Greek thought was not just foolishness, it was also undesirable to the Greeks, and so they laughed at him. For Paul, however, the resurrection was absolutely fundamental. What does he say to the Corinthians? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and our faith is in vain. And then Paul draws the logical conclusion, saying that we believers would be most pitied among all believers if Christ was not raised. A physical resurrection from the dead was unbelievable then, as it is now. There are, however, critical modern scholars who argue very carefully that a physical resurrection of Christ is the best explanation for the rapid growth of the early church. Uh, N.T. Wright, world-class historian and theologian, he wrote some 900 pages, very carefully argued for a physical resurrection. There is no way that the first followers of Christ would have been prepared to endure great persecution, suffering, and even death if they were not utterly convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead. Let me briefly underline the importance of Christ's resurrection with another story from Japan. I remember how surprised I was when our Japanese friends told us that the largest Buddhist branch in Japan that they belong to also teaches salvation by grace through faith. Shinran, the founder of this uh, Buddhist branch called True Pure Land Buddhism, stresses that salvation was not attainable through effort or through accumulation of merits but only by faith in the grace of Amida Buddha. When I heard about this, it felt as the wind was sort of being taken out of my evangelistic sails. After all, I learned at seminary that Christianity is the only religion that teaches salvation by grace through faith. Now our Japanese friends tell us that all the followers of Amida Buddha need to do is allegedly to invoke the gracious name of Amida Buddha, and the result is rebirth in the pure land where there is no evil and people live long, healthy lives. In other words, the followers of this Buddhist branch share not only a teaching of salvation similar to ours, but also an eschatological hope, an end-time hope, 
um, that looks not too dissimilar from a Christian one. Although I'm usually annoyed when the popular secular media um, sort of says all the religions are the same. Um, in this case, I was not quite sure how to make the Christian faith uniquely attractive to our friends. So sometime later, I came across a book, a testimony of a former Buddhist monk who converted to Christianity. And uh, he started out in his, in his book um, investigating the beginning of the true Pure Land Buddhism. And he noticed that this 12th century uh, Buddhist monk, Shinran, apparently was adopting Christian thinking. Um, you see the Nestorian missionaries, they brought the gospel already in the seventh century to China. And so he adopted it and turned into a, a, a Buddhist philosophy, if you like. So when the former Buddhist monk, who became a Christian then, realized that uh, Shinran just adopted the Christian message to the Buddhism, um, he felt that well, the only difference is that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. So he put his trust in the resurrected Christ and his teaching and not the 12th century teaching of Shinran. In Athens, however, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And at this point, Paul left some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Europagite, and a woman called Damaris, and others with them. Now one could say much more about uh, this rich chapter, but uh, let me just make a few summarizing observations regarding Paul's approach and his sermon. Firstly, let's remember Paul's attitude. Although Paul was extremely distressed at the sight of all the idols, he does not show it in his attitude and in his talking instead. He is respectful and engages with the Greek culture um, on a deep level by demonstrating his culture awareness. Even to the degree that he knows their writers, he earns himself the right to be heard. Already Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China um, Inland Mission that later became OMF, warned more than 150 years ago that, uh, and I quote, in nothing do we fail more as missionaries than in lack of tact and politeness, end of quote. Let's remember Paul's respectful attitude. Secondly, the importance of contextualization Paul starts where his audience is at. He takes advantages of similarities between the Greek uh, philosophies and writers um, and establishes bridges between Greek culture and scripture. Paul refers to an unknown God and fills the unknown with biblical content. Paul cites pagan writers to underline common truth in order to build bridges to his audience. While we were studying in the UK, 
there was an evangelistic campaign with posters that were saying, Jesus is the answer. Until under one poster, somebody wrote, uh, sorry, but, but what's the, what was the question? Yes, what are the questions that people have in their minds? We must make every attempt, I think, to enter the hearts and minds of those we are trying to reach, to try to understand their worries, their hopes and joys. And then, only then, I think, we are in a position to pray into their hearts and, and witness to them in ways that are relevant. Thirdly and finally, from God and his creation to Jesus. We have noted when Paul talks to people with little or no biblical background, he does not begin by speaking about Jesus. Instead, Paul begins with God's sovereign and just rule. He is the Lord of all life and death, nature and all peoples. And only when Paul has established people's fundamental enslavement to idolatry and God's judgment thereof, only then the gospel of Jesus starts to make sense and actually becomes good news. If there is no divine holiness, no wrath against idolatry and, and justice, the gospel of the cross and resurrection becomes either too small or meaningless. Now, having prepared a context for preaching the death and resurrection of Christ is, is no guarantee for a better reception. We have seen that some of Paul's audience burst into laughter, while others wanted to hear more. But a few believed. In whatever form and way we are guided to pray and witness to the gospel, let us hold firm, firm to the fact that the battle has been won for us. Christ conquered sin and death. Last Thursday, we remembered Christ's ascension. He entered a heavenly sanctuary where he now sits at the right hand of God, interceding not only for us, but also for those who will come to believe through our witnessing. Let's pray. Gracious Father God, thank you for your victory in Christ, our Lord. You have called your servant Paul to become an apostle to the Gentiles. We thank you for Paul's unceasing drive to spread the good news of Jesus' historic victory in the world. And perhaps several of us this morning know Christ indirectly because of Paul's missional life. Lord, we pray for gifted evangelists who will be ambassadors of you and your kingdom. Grant us grace that we too, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will be able to participate in your mission to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations for the glory and honor of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.